when Jess contacted me and said something about this new sermon series that we're going to be doing. And she said, what would, you like to, what would you like to teach on? And like immediately what I said is, I want to talk about self-worth. I want to talk about this because our sense of self and how we see ourselves affects everything. Like it affects how we, who we are in relationships. It affects how we present ourselves. It affects what we put up with, what chances we take, and what we think we deserve. And in all my years of being involved in church leadership, I've seen this be such a pervasive issue. For all we talk about being created in the image of God, or this lovely Latin phrase that we use a lot called imago dei, which basically just means in the image of God. For all we talk about how loved we are, I've seen more people suffer with issues of seeing themselves of having worth. It can manifest in how they see their bodies, how they feel like they're not enough, not good enough, not smart enough, not capable enough, not perfect enough. And the mental and physical energy that we spend on our perceived lacks is enormous. We overcompensate. We second and third and fourth guess ourselves. We self-flagellate or beat ourselves up we make ourselves take up less space and try to control our unruly bodies and minds. And almost all of us have something that we face. But for each one of us, that ends up being unique. But for as excited as I was about preaching this sermon, the more I got into it, the more I talked with people, the more I started wrestling with what to say, the more I realized how big this is. And so I'm just going to be scratching the surface a little bit in this sermon. Um, I'm not going to have all the answers to all of the issues, but I'm just going to give us a little bit of a conversation about how we view things and maybe how that needs to change. Because in our culture, we get a lot of messages about worth. Our culture bombards us with messages and silent sermons about the standards of what make us perfect, what make us worthy. And they can be from the, the amount of wealth and affluence we have to our beauty, to our age, to our race, to our sexual orientation. If we don't measure up to the standards around us, the standards that constantly bombard us, we are told that we are found wanting. Some of us weather this better than others. But most of us can pinpoint at least one place where we have an insecurity, where we feel we don't measure up. Some of us go even further and internalize our lacks and those, those less than moments, and it becomes part of our identity. We consistently see ourselves as this lack, this less than. And unfortunately, our culture isn't the only place that this comes from. Like it or not, sometimes these silent sermons come from within the church itself. What we say, sometimes how we say it, can reinforce this idea that we are less than and somehow rubber stamp it with God's approval. I know this is an incredible deep subject, and that I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface. But I really hope that how we talk about today and explore the identities that we give ourselves and the way we here in the body of Christ talk about ourselves, 
that, that we can begin to get a handle on how do we change this? And how do we become a place where we stop questioning if we have worth? I feel like these messages sneak in in many ways. But one of the ways it starts is by the ways we put value judgments on everything. And these skewed judgments come from everywhere and they comment on all parts of us, even things that are physical. Now, you can't tell this by looking at me right now, but um, I got glasses when I was two and a half years old. I have a very, very strong farsighted prescription. In this eye, I'm plus 775, and in this eye, I'm plus 725. I was the youngest person that my eye doctor ever put in contact lenses. Um, I got them when I was eight. And with my glasses and contacts, I can see fine. Yet my entire life, I was told, you have bad eyesight. Bad. And help me out here. When you have 20-20 vision, what do people tell you? You have what? Perfect vision, right? Has anybody been told that ever? Maybe. Um, and even in this sort of innocuous story, we begin to see how even the smallest things get a value judgment put on it. My eyesight is bad. Your eyesight is perfect. Your eyesight is good. Why value judgments? We put these on all kinds of things. And they're often contradictory and unhealthy. Like, we put in our society a value judgment on earning enough to live comfortably, but also, will judge you if you're not working too hard to get that done. We will make you sacrifice your mental health or expect you to sacrifice your mental health or your family life in order to be and able to be living comfortably. We put value judgments on how people eat and what they eat. We prioritize the look of outward health even if the way it's achieved isn't in a healthy way. It goes over and over and over again. I talked to a friend of mine um, who kind of, she kind of articulated this idea for me too. She said, you know, when I am hungry for good foods, it's seen as a good thing. But if I'm hungry for a cookie, it's seen as a bad thing. But isn't, shouldn't it still be good because I'm recognizing my hunger and my hunger is good and having a good relationship with my hunger makes me a healthy person. She went on to talk about like the time in her life when she tried so hard to control every aspect of her hunger, seeing it as bad and trying to discipline every aspect of it. From the outside, she looked incredibly thin and fit, and she was applauded for being healthy, but she was actually the most damaged and had the worst relationship with food that she'd ever had in her life. She said she was slowly killing herself. And we have this in all kinds of different areas. You don't have any kids? Well, that's a bad thing. You have too many kids? Well, that's a bad thing. You should work to support your family, and you should stay home with your family and not work. And these conflicting messages do so much to undermine our sense of knowing that we're doing the right thing or even having a sense of worth in this. And fear and shame and jealousy interplay with this message.
And then we're not good enough. We're not good enough in the way we look, in the way we act, in our status, in our orientation, in the color of our skin, in our age. We never measure up. We're not good enough. We're not godly enough. We're not smart enough. We're not handsome enough. Not straight enough. Not feminine enough. Not controlled enough. Not perfect enough. Consistently, over and over, we're always told we're not enough. And this list is endless. For many of us in one way or another, we have these places that we feel like we are less than, that we don't measure up. And for many of us, we've internalized this to be something about ourselves and our bodies that is inherently bad. And it can become part of our identity and how we perpetually see, our, perpetually see ourselves. So what does scripture say about this? Well, I'm actually gonna do, <laughs> surprise, something a little different. Because I could start right now and quote a lot of scripture at you, um, assuming that what I'm saying is what you need to hear to address your worth. But I think we need to go another layer down. I think what's really important is what is the lens that we use to view the scripture and how does that affect the way we see the scripture? How does that affect the silent sermons that are coming out of the very words we read? Let me give you an example. Um, when I was a worship leader many, many, many years ago, at the church that I was at, a song that we would sing all the time was a song that had a line in it that came directly out of scripture from King David. And it was a song that was like built in repentance and, and understanding who we are and who God was. And it, and it said, cleanse me and I will be made clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And in that song was the idea that sin was dark and freedom and, and repentance led to being made clean, which was white. And I had a friend come up to me and said, we need to stop singing that song. I'm like, you know, we have these incredible moments every Sunday when we do this. She said, no, we need to stop singing this song. And she said, because for me, as an African-American woman, what I'm internalizing when you sing that song is that as I am, I will never be clean. And I was floored. Like, nothing in my worldview would have ever led me to see that scripture that way. And I probably would have had we been in a prayer time and we were talking and she was talking about feeling, needing repentance. We would have probably gone to that scripture and I had no idea that what I was doing was reinforcing something that she already saw in herself that people told her, that society had put on her, that her experiences had led her to believe. So it's so important that we think about the lens with which we view the word of God, these sacred texts that we are given, so that what we can bring is life. And so I'm going to take us today and look at two different worldviews. Both of them were kind of present about the time that Jesus was here on the earth, and one has had a vast impact on how our society and our philosophy and our worldview is shaped today. And the other is one that we don't know as well. Look at sort of Greek and Hebrew worldviews. I'm going to kind of separate them out a little bit, talk about them, and then look at a couple scriptures together from both perspectives so you can kind of get a sense of what I'm talking about. So the Greek um, philosophical system is kind of the basis 
of Western philosophy and worldview. It's kind of where we started. And in that, there are a couple things that are really noteworthy. And one is the idea of perfection. Take time to read Plato's cave analogy and, and learn a little bit about his discussion of forms. And he has this idea that perfection exists, that there's a world of perfect forms. And it's not just like the perfect form for a tree and the perfect form for water, but it's also ideas, the perfect form for democracy and the perfect form for justice and the perfect form for beauty. These standards and ideals, this form, exist somewhere else, not here on earth, because what we have here is only uh, uh, a, a reflection or an image or a copy of that perfect form. And eventually what is here will die out, but the perfect will stay. And these standards and these forms and these perfections are the ideals with which we want to live by or work towards or move towards. And Greek philosophy and then what became Western philosophy embodied that idea. So like thinking about it, the, those, those forms and those perfect, that perfect thing that is somewhere else and then we here will die out and we're having imperfectness, it affects the way we see everything. Uh, it affects the way we interpret what Jesus does. Now, I'm going to say some things here, and I want you to know that I think that there's an idea, there's, there's a road, and there's a ditch on either side of the road, and sometimes I think we easily get off to the ditch on either side of the road, starting on the right foot, and then take it too far. So I want you to hear what I'm saying, but I want you to understand that I'm not trying to like go super far lengths with this. I just want us to have a perspective for a moment and think. One of the ways that we tend to interpret the sacrifice of Jesus and the way our world is and the way heaven is, is through this Greek mindset. We think about this world was perfect when God created it. And then came the fall and sin. And now things are not perfect. They are not how they were meant to be. But through Christ, we can be saved for heaven where perfection is, where God is, and saved from hell, which is eternal absence from that. Our bodies here will die, and when they die, then we get to go to where it is perfect. Our spirits will be in that place of perfection. Now, there's some truth to this. Like, obviously, what was perfect was damaged by sin. But the idea that we are never going to ever grow past that place and only can, can, can achieve something when we get to heaven is sometimes a little damaging. It, it changes the way we see what happens here and now. Let me contrast this a little bit with the Hebrew worldview. The different lens. In the Hebrew worldview, standards are important. The ideals are important. But shalom and relationship take precedence. For example, let's say I was speeding in an elementary school zone, uh, going about 30 miles above the speed limit. I'm not caught. Nobody catches me. I do not get a speeding ticket. Under the Greek mindset, 
I have sinned, I have done something wrong, and I should get punished. There should be justice for me breaking the standard. In the Hebrew worldview, we look at that and say, why? Why were you speeding? Did your wife get taken to the hospital with her baby on the way? Did you find out some really horrible news and you need to get somewhere right away? Are you really excited? Are you super tired and you need to get home? Like, what is the relationship? What is the other pieces in play? Yes, there should be justice, but yes, relationship takes precedence. And shalom is not just about being at peace. It's about being in harmony, like true deep peace between us and God, between us and ourselves, between us and our others, and between us and our world. And in the Hebrew mindset, perfection, this ideal, is not something that will just happen at a later time. Perfection is really defined as something being fulfilled, something coming to fruition. It's like a flower. When the flower pushes its seed from its seed up through the earth and comes up, and it lives what it's meant to be, it feeds the birds and it feeds the bees and it exchanges carbon dioxide for oxygen and it lifts its face to the sun and it brings beauty and it's being truly itself. It is living in fulfillment. That is perfection. It doesn't matter if there is a little brown part on the stem. It doesn't matter if not all the petal ratios are exactly right. If it's living what it was meant to be, that's perfection. There was a Hebrew rabbi, um, Rabbi Zusha, that, that was in about the 11th century, and he, when he was dying, he did many, many incredible things in his lifetime. When he was dying, he was incredibly concerned and his, his disciples said, Rabbi Zusha, what's going on? And he was getting more and more agitated. Are you afraid to die? And he said, yes, I'm afraid. And they said, why? You've done all these amazing things. You were like Moses. You were like Abraham. You lived like these people. And Rabbi Zusha said, I, I'm not afraid that God is going to say, Rabbi Zusha, why were you not more like Moses? Or Rabbi Zusha, why were you not more like Abraham? I am afraid that God is going to say, Rabbi Zusha, why were you not more like Rabbi Zusha? Why were you not more like who you were meant to be? And think about how that affects the way we interpret Jesus' sacrifice. That maybe he was here to write a relationship so that we can be restored and restore each other and restore our world. That we can be who we were created to be. That we can live in fulfillment. Be creators of shalom. Partnering with God in the restoration of all things, for the here and now, not just in the world to come. Let's compare and contrast how we would look at Scripture from these two different worldviews. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, and this is how we translate it in the, in the NIV, be perfect just like your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is so different depending on your lenses. Because if we look at it from the Greek worldview, this is a standard you have to live up to. You should be perfect, just like God is perfect. It's something you have to reach. But if we flip that and look at that from the Hebrew point of view, 
Jesus is saying, grow up, grow full, live out your God-created destiny. Be fully yourself, just as your God is fully themselves. Are you catching the difference? Our lens can affect the way we see scripture and the way we see God and how God relates to us and how we see ourselves. Our perspective matters because some of the ways we interpret scripture doesn't undo the harmful messages about how we see ourselves. Instead, it reinforces it. One of the biggest examples of where I see this is around sex, sexuality, and gender. For those of you like me who grew up firmly rooted in the purity culture, we found ourselves constantly being bombarded with mixed messages about how to act and how one thing can be bad in one context and good in another. And we begin to internalize because we were told over and over again that we can't trust our bodies because they are bad and sinful. And we can't trust our desires because they could cause sin. And these sins will taint us for the rest of our lives, even with the redemption of God. We were told that if our body, if we don't cover it right, could cause somebody else to sin. We got caught in all these places that reinforce the idea that we are not good enough. This that you have is not worthy. You are bad. This is bad. And I saw it destroy so many lives. Add to that, what if you deviated from the binary? Then what? Even more judgment. Because anything less than perfection is bad. And this idea of being created in the image of God is suddenly given way to the idea that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and your flesh, your flesh. When we or our unruly bodies are bad, then what? We learn to distrust our desires. We struggle to control them. We revile parts of ourselves and believe that we have to discipline the bad out of us. Or we try to ignore the bad places and focus on or fill our lives with other things so that we don't even go there. Sometimes we take on the identity of sinner writ large that is all we are, and constantly live in a cycle of repentance and shame. Or we focus on the idea that one day this body will be gone and I will be in a place of perfection. Things will be right. But that's not what Jesus is saying to us. And John then, when he talks about being the good shepherd, which we actually referenced in some of the songs we sang today, he says, my sheep know my voice. And in that, he said, look, the people who I have called who are following me, my purpose is to come to give them life to the full, abundant life, rich, fulfilled, satisfying lives. That's here, not there. We're meant, I think, to remember this Hebraic understanding of perfection where the standard isn't held over us in condemnation, constantly measuring us and finding us wanting, but instead that Christ is calling us to a relationship that enables us to live 
towards wholeness and that standard. Finding our fulfillment in being who God created us to be, truly ourselves. And that's not just for a time to come. That begins now. In Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul tells the story of Moses coming down from the mountain after getting the Ten Commandments. And he'd come face to face with God, and that was reflected all over him. But the Hebrew people couldn't handle that glory because they saw it and found themselves wanting. So they asked him to cover his face with a veil until that faded off. And the Apostle Paul said this, The old ways with laws etched in stone led to death, though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. And shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way, with the Holy Spirit giving us life? If the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is this new way that makes us right with God. And he goes on to talk about how that relationship with God changes us all the time, daily, continues to restore us and bring us to who we were meant to be. And he said, when someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is spirit. And wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom So all of us who have had this veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is spirit, makes us more and more like him. And we are changed into his glorious image. This is us, created in the image of God. And when we come, even now, he changes us to be more and more like God. As we walk with Christ and his spirit living within us, this is a place of becoming, of stepping into who we were meant to be. So let's refrain all of this. You're told in a myriad of silent sermons about the ways that we are less than, how we are bad, how we sin and do not measure up, and sometimes even the way we approach ourselves and our faith we can confirm this in a deeper silent sermon. But, but we are created in the image of God. If you go back to the beginning of humanity, God made our bodies in their image. That's what it says. Let us make mankind in our image. Yours and my bodies are made in God's image. And then he breathed life into us. You and I in our physical presence are reflecting God. And in this is the inherent foundation of worth. And grace. Grace is not a blanket that we have to pull over us to cover our badness or our sin or our less thanness. So we have a promise of heaven. Instead, grace comes with Christ Jesus to bring fullness now and shalom beginning now. It is the impetus that propels us back into relationship, into shalom with God. 
Grace doesn't reinforce the condemnation of where we have not measured up. Instead, grace reminds us of who we were meant to be and who we can be. It is the means to restore us to wholeness and to become your fullest self. Because you, you were created in the image of our God. Your worth is not obscured by your badness, by your unruly bodies, by how you do not measure up. Your worth is not validated by your goodness or your success or your perceived perfection. You are inherently beautiful and wonderfully crafted. And grace is here. Grace to walk you into shalom and into wholeness into harmony with God, into harmony with yourself, into harmony with those around you, and harmony with all of creation. If you hear nothing else, you have worth. You are worth. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would come and show us again what you're calling us to be. Who you've created each one of us to be. Show us how to walk with you into embracing ourselves in your image. And to be a partner with you in the restoration of ourselves, our lives, our relationships, and our world.